a huge fan of this concept of practicing at the top of your scope. What does that look like for you? I think the most satisfying day in recent memory that I can think of is, uh, you know, helping the patients intubated on decently high vent settings, walking the ICU, and then going directly down to the ED to evaluate a patient with acute undifferentiated dizziness and perform an Ebley maneuver and have them be able to go on their way. It's not just, you know, the, the physical treatment of PT that's exciting, but leading kind of the team-based diagnostic approach as well, just going from one exciting domain right to the other, like literally back to back. That was such a satisfying day for me. And there's a lot of things in between, but in the hospital setting, to me, those are kind of the two big focuses on my end. And like, what a privilege to be able to intervene with both of those different situations and both of those moments in people's lives. One thing I say a lot is the physical therapist can be the right provider at the right time, and it sounds like that's exactly what you were that day. Hi, welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. John Corsino. He's going to tell you exactly why physical therapists are the best positioned healthcare professionals to make culture change, to help with cost savings, to improve the quality of care that patients are getting in the hospital system and other settings. He's also going to share with you his simplified framework for how to evaluate dizzy patients in the ED. I know it can be intimidating and it can be difficult, but John makes it simple just for you. Don't miss this episode of In the ED Now. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, and today I have with me Dr. John Corsino. Welcome. Thanks, Rebecca. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. There are so many really good things that I want to talk to you about, but I think the first thing that we should start with are, tell me three things about you that you think people need to know before we dive into this conversation. All right, three things about me. I'm very excited about the idea of using physical exam to advance the parts of healthcare that PTs are really well positioned to lead. Um, I've been practicing in a community hospital for nine years. It's actually in the community where I grew up. Um, and I love to spend time outdoors. I love all of that. You should move to Colorado. It sounds like it it'd be the perfect like spot for you. All right. So one of the things that you and I talked about today was talking about the culture in healthcare. And I think that that's kind of a loaded topic because I think a lot of people think there's a lot of issues with healthcare culture, but you have a different take on that. I think that uh, we're all active participants, no matter our roles. There's certainly a tendency towards passive revenue generating solutions and PTs are in such a good position to lead the way towards things that are wins for all parties in healthcare, for hospital systems, for patients, and for payers. Um, nuts and bolts on, on a kind of really small scale basis, I think when we're in hospital units, we can lead the way toward care that, that are the types of things that patients need uh, that also help hospital operations that we can demonstrate those through the things that we're already trained to do. Um, healthcare, you know, burnout, dissatisfaction, a huge topic for us right now. I mm -hmm. think that to work in healthcare as a hands-on clinical person is probably among the most rewarding possible things we can do. I'm glad to get to do this job every day, but I think that, um, you know, we should feel really privileged to do it, but also feel entitled to a, a degree of satisfaction too. And so when we're utilized well, practicing the top of our scopes, we're going to leave fulfilled every day. Um, when we're doing some of the kinds of things that you've talked about previously, writing notes for insurance authorization, things sort of at the lower end of the PT scope, then it's harder to leave and feel like you did uh, the type of work that you could. So I think from the, the big scale to the small, PTs are really in a good position to help lead culture shifts uh, in healthcare systems small on the small scale and on the big scale too. 
I love that. You know, I'm a huge fan of this concept of practicing at the top of your scope. What does that look like for you? Um, I think the most satisfying day in recent memory that I can think of is, um, you know, helping a patient intubated on decently high vent settings, walk in the ICU, and then going directly down to the ED to evaluate a patient with acute undifferentiated dizziness and perform uh, an Ebley maneuver and have them be able to go on their way. It's not just, you know, the, the physical treatment of PT that's exciting, but leading kind of the team-based diagnostic approach as well, just going from one exciting domain right to the other, like literally back to back. That was such a satisfying day for me. And there's a lot of things in between, yes. but in the hospital setting, to me, those are kind of the two big focuses on my end. And like, what a privilege to be able to intervene with both of those different situations and both of those moments in people's lives. One thing I say a lot is the physical therapist can be the right provider at the right time. And it sounds like that's exactly what you were that day. You know, healthcare is complicated. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes you have a day where you run around uh, insanely busy and feel like you didn't make nearly the impact that you wanted to. And other times things just kind of come together. And the more we can chip away at the systems that we're part of to help maximize those opportunities, then the, the more satisfied we're going to be because the better we're going to be helping our patients. Yeah. And I think some PTs listening are probably like, you know, John, I'm like way too burned out for that. There's no way nobody listens to me. Nobody even knows what I, I do. Like, how am I supposed to lead this culture change? Hey, totally valid. Um, I always say we're all active participants, whether we want to be or not in the culture of the units we're on and the, yes. the systems that we're part of. So I think, you know, leading by example, cliche as it sounds is an important thing to do. And I think also, you know, setting processes so the team can reflect and see the rewarding things that they're doing. I think as as busy and as, um, you know, stretched as we all are, it is possible to to come back and feel really satisfied at what we're doing and to just take small improvements in increments from there. I think too, when we're really practicing at the top of our scope, we feel like we have control over what's happening, right? Like we feel like we have control over our patient outcomes. We have control over how we're managing our patients. We're well-respected in our departments and in our units and people can see the value that we're providing. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, autonomy, we know from the literature is really highly associated with vocational satisfaction. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we're really extensively trained specialists. PT is in this funny spot where um, the utilization in, an, in a kind of older culture can be very different than the most current things that we know how to do. And yeah, there's lots of room, lots of room to gain ground there. So when you talk about healthcare utilization, and that PTs are well positioned. Talk, talk to me about that. Why do you think PTs are, are so valuable in healthcare utilization? So um, I'm going to take a real big picture approach to this one. So as I was sort of choosing a career direction, I observed what I thought was a, a pretty wide cross section of healthcare. It turned out it was really narrow. But at the time, I thought I had seen like, okay, this is what primary care does. This is what nurses do. This is what PTs do. And and even then, this was not that long ago, but there were so many passive things happening, um, you know, orthopedic surgeries, prescriptions, very little lifestyle medicine. And I said, I, I feel, you know, very excited about the ideas of exercise and doing things that are, you know, don't have much downside. They're going to be good for patients that don't cost as much. And I wonder why that's so underutilized. And then as a, as I became a PT and became part of a clinical system and learned much more about how American healthcare works, I just got more and more fired up about we, <laughs> we have exactly the kind of training to lead the way here. We do physical exam, we do lifestyle medicine, we do literally all of it. And sooner or later, the, you know, the, the pendulum has to swing back the other way. And whether it's led by payment changes or not, I mean, there's systems like Kaiser, there's plenty of little ACOs throughout the country where systems are already in place that are really motivated to save costs just by providing better, more proactive, conservative type care to patients. And it can only get better than today. This is the bottom of the barrel for in terms of passivity. 
Well, and I would agree with you. And I think that applies to literally any physical therapist setting. Yeah, I agree. I always think about the hospital first, but for sure. I mean, outpatient, community, literally anything. I'm with you. So, John, are we doing enough, though? No, I mean, it's impossible to do enough. Uh, the, yeah. uh, the system is so far this way, but we can we can demonstrate through things like cost modeling that um, that our way is not just best for patients, but also makes good financial sense. And that's something that I like to see on the advocacy scale from professional associations um, a little more of. And I know that's a lot more easily said than done, but... Mm-hmm. No, no, I don't think we're doing enough. And if I could change one thing overnight, it would be a little more concrete demonstration about cost effectiveness. We know like Hopkins publishes their tools about cost modeling, ICU rehab. There's no reason that things like that can't be pl- be applied uh, in other domains. Yeah, and I think that report that was just released by the APTA about several specific diagnoses showing the cost savings that physical therapist intervention can have will be really helpful from an advocacy perspective as well as patient education. But um, when I'm thinking about like the emergency department in particular and the hospital system and even outpatient clinics, I think about upstream care and how we get involved sooner. Have you have you read the book Upstream at all? No, I haven't. Tell me about it. Yeah. So this book is like the the premise of the book is that you and a friend are like sitting by the river and you see a kid in the river and you jump in the river and you save the kid and you pull the kid out. And then all of a sudden there's more and more kids. So your friend jumps in and you're both pulling these kids out of the water. You're pulling one after another. And then finally your friend gets out and leaves and you're like, hey, where are you going? I need your help. Like there's all these kids in the water. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to figure out who's throwing the kids in the water. So the the premise is really how do we get upstream of the problem so that we're not with this like downstream response. And I would argue that physical therapists are the exact right people to do that because we have that preventative care. We have that different outlook. We have that functional approach. But I feel like physical therapist practice as it stands right now is very reactive. You're definitely right. Yeah. So I love the, uh, the analogy of the upstream story you just described. And I agree 100% that earlier we can get involved, no matter the care domain, the more effective we're going to be with our type of work specifically. Um, there's there's no question that we wait as, you know, American healthcare system way too long to get involved with patients and, and things are, you know, more advanced, they're more expensive and treating them, frankly, produces more revenue at that point. Um, so it's not, not the best thing for patients to wait, but sometimes hospitals uh, worried about that top line, you know, have their interests in, in doing things a certain way. And so it's it's crucial that we demonstrate, and I think PT and the emergency departments are a really good place to do it, that, that what we're doing, again, is not just good for patients, but also going to be really good for hospital systems themselves. Yeah, I think one example of how PTs and ED can be a little bit upstream. I usually think of us as upstream at the bottom of the waterfall, right? Like we're already at the bottom of the waterfall if the patient's in the ED. But one thing that we can do is we're protecting the hospital resources, right? So if that patient doesn't actually need to be admitted to the hospital because we can provide the appropriate care, we can get them on to the next best place. That's one way we can provide that upstream care. But yeah, one, thing that, one thing that you kind of alluded to that they talk about in the book is it's very hard to prove that what you did didn't cause something. So it's very hard to prove that your preventative care actually pre- prevented that patient from having mm-hmm. years of diabetes related costs. So I think that is a big issue, but I love where you're thinking about how PTs can save the healthcare system money and how that, that could also improve healthcare culture. Yeah, it would take population level data to prove, you know, a lifetime of cost savings. And, um, but I don't think it's impossible. It's not going to happen overnight, but I, I think within our careers, I think it will happen. I also think there's more value in that, right? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's it's better for it's it's a rare thing in healthcare that every group wins. There's not a push pull relationship, and I think that we're we're there and we can lead the way to it. 
I totally agree. I think that would also really require us to operate more with an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. Because one thing that I'm thinking about in the acute care setting, which also happens in the ED, but I know that you're really familiar with this, is when you're looking at the amount of patients that you have in the hospital to see every day, there are those patients where you have to go, they're good enough. They don't need PT. I'm going to see this patient who's in the ICU that can't move. I'm going to see this patient with the acute vertigo. I'm, I'm going to let that person who can walk 150 feet be because that's good enough. But is that really good enough? Is that patient going to be able to thrive at home if they're able to walk 150 feet with a walker? Like, how do we avoid that scarcity mindset in the hospital and prioritize our patients? Yeah, I like that. We could probably talk all day just about that, about culture specifically. <laughs> so um, I, my first, the first thought that came into mind, as you, as you mentioned that, is the idea between, you know, intrinsic and extrinsic rewards. And I think if therapists are really trained and confident uh, and capable and aware of the impact they can make, and, and they're going to be, you know, internally rewarded by spending their time in the most effective way, then I yeah. think that is a head start. Whereas, you know, therapists for whatever reason have have a, so much on their plate that they're just, you know, putting out fires. Like sometimes when you cover a hospital on a weekend, you're covering, you know, five med surge units or whatever. And, um, and it's easy to lose track of that. And I think like very rapidly dissatisfaction comes from that. And I feel like that's unfortunately too common among hospital PT. In terms of how do we frame that or how do we, what do we do about that going forward? I think that, um, you know, there's no no group in a hospital that's adequately staffed, right? But right. that is one of the, the difficult skills of hospital PT is finding the happy medium between being able to maximize your impact and not letting anyone slip through the cracks, especially in the emergency department. I do think it can be done. I think case reviews are really helpful. I think reviewing the census, mm-hmm. doing things like interdisciplinary rounds are, are kind of time-effective fundamentals toward getting to that. Um, but my, my kind of bias in that situation is, yeah, we're never going to be able to see all of the patients with the frequency or duration that we think is appropriate. And so we do need to, to prioritize where our impact can be. And it could be tricky, right? If you're, you know, spending time with folks in the ICU who are going to go to acute rehab from the hospital, no matter what. And then you have these other folks who are kind of frail and at risk and are going to discharge home. It it is not nearly as easy as it sounds in conversation, but um, no, I do think it can be done. And I think maybe I have different biases the most about where, where we should spend our time as therapists. Tell me. I'm very much for, you know, the um, the playbook of implementing like nurse-driven mobility and, yes. um, you know, f- advocating for staff. So at our hospital, we did this program. Um, the way it started was, you know, a proposal about implementing nurse-driven mobility using the AMPAC, HLM goals, interdisciplinary rounds, and mm-hmm. then advocated specifically for an additional nurse's aid on each med surge unit because, like, you know, no surprise. And I think it's very reasonable. All the nurses we surveyed said, no, time is the barrier. And I pushed back at first a little. I said, I think perception of importance is the barrier. I think you you mm. are not going to have time for something, but maybe we're not perceiving mobility as important enough compared to what we know its effectiveness to be for patients. Um, but in any case, advocated for an additional uh, nurse's aid on each med surge unit. And, you know, we're told at the time by executives, you know, no, we're not going to do that. But what we'll do is give you guys the rehab department um, two aids to train as mobility techs, which we did. Um, and then, you know, had the really rewarding experience of demonstrating over time, you know, okay, we have like many fewer readmissions among patients who are discharged home. We have many fewer discharges to rehab, which means there were some that were preventable before, um, which, you know, we all knew, but kind of when we could put numbers to it was an exciting thing. And then to go from there to cost model being the difficult next step. But, you know, the more we can do to kind of 
lead the entire multi multidisciplinary care team, then the the more time we have effectively as therapists to redirect toward the high impact, you know, specifically therapy areas. And I don't think team-based differential diagnosis is any different. I think it's harder to accept because, you know, PT is a is a label that comes with some some biases for maybe how things used to be or, or how some people are used to practicing. But no, I think it's it's just a totally analogous thing where we can lead the way by knowing what we know and being experts in the things we're trained to be experts at and, and being vocal about that. I think that you raise a good point that when we're using PT appropriately, top of scope, and we're leveraging our education and our training and our specific lens, we can really make a larger impact more so than just this patient ambulate three times today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is also this bias that in acute care, physical therapists don't need a lot of skill. But I would argue that acute care is where I've used the most of my skills. Oh, 100%. I get so fired up when people say you're just walking people, you know, outpatients so different. Like if you're just walking people, you have no clue what you're doing in hospital PT. Like that is not what we do. <laughs> Absolutely. And in the hospital too, there's just so many different diagnoses, so many medical comorbidities, so many social issues that are impacting our patient's care. And then you take all of that and you stir it up and you put that patient in the emergency department where you have limited resources, limited time, limited equipment, and you have to then get it done. What's your best advice for people trying to be part of that team-based differential diagnosis squad? I think you you definitely need to know. Um, co confidence is a question mark, I think, for a lot of new grad PTs. Mm. And I know it was for me when I started in the ED as a brand new grad. And I'm like, you know, a person with many flaws, but shortage of confidence typically not among them. And uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> hard to know, like, okay, is this, how, how much should I push right now? Or like, what, how, how difficult should I be in advocating for this patient? Um, and then once you string together lots of successes, uh, you know, ident identify this movie movement disorder or like this flagrant myelopathy or this other thing that definitely needed attention, then it becomes easier to have collaborative um, team-based discussions. And that, you know, that's, that's one certain kind of hospital. I think maybe uh, a teaching institution where people are more used to team-based discussions and things like that. We have residents and lots of kind of like peer-level colleagues that that things could be different. But knowing what you know in a in a positive way, not in a you know, be really cautious, but in a don't be afraid to speak up. You were an expert at identifying these things. You see the skate abnormality. You know how to advocate. Don't don't be afraid to do it. That would be my big piece of advice. But my kind of caution or kind of my first thought in thinking about practicing in the ED as a new grad is like, there is this real potential for kind of, uh, I guess, structural neglect, I would call it, of, mm. of older folks who, who for whatever reason, aren't able to advocate for themselves and land in the ED with, you know, kind of flimsy labels like failure to thrive. And yeah. then, uh, you know, younger folks on Medicaid, two groups who um, I feel get you know, end up in the ED with PT consults that are decently often not appropriate. And, and it's important to, to be cautious about not enabling that, that kind of structural neglect and really being thorough and, and careful in saying, if there's a limitation or an impairment that needs to be explained, we're not going to just send this patient along to the next steps without making sure we've explained that or ruled out, you know, something potentially dangerous. So those would be kind of my two things, not being afraid to speak up, um, and really being cautious about not kind of greasing the wheels on those patients that they just want to get, you know, in and out of the ED. Yeah, using the safety net for what it's for, right? For sure. Yeah, precisely. Catching those people. I love that. So another thing that I get asked a lot about uh, as an EDPT and from people who want to be EDPTs, from people who are EDPTs, from outpatient clinicians that are trying to make that transition is I just don't feel comfortable with vertigo. So I hear that all the time. 
And I know you're on like a one man mission to clean that up, fix that, give people a specific framework for how to evaluate these patients and help build their confidence. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like, I love the article that you wrote specifically because I felt like it really made it accessible. It made it interesting. It made it like a framework that I felt like I could easily follow. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I'd love to. And thank you for saying that. Um, I de- so I'm not on a one-man mission. I got to give a shout out to Dana. He's like so much more knowledgeable than me. I don't know if you know Dana. Um, she's fantastic. Well, it sounds like I need to. You definitely need to know her. So um, the I had taken a lot of continuing ed, dizziness, different vestibular things. I took actually an elective MPT school, which was awesome. I had a lot of great opportunities to learn from really smart and knowledgeable people, but I still felt like the approach I had was not organized or streamlined enough. And it was kind of you know, approach, approaching from the bottom and seeing kind of what sticks. And then I came across, um, this titrate framework. Um, yeah. Ed Lowe and Newman Toker. And I said, Oh yeah, this is so good. I need to make sure everyone knows about this. So, uh, just the sequence of reasoning through undifferentiated dizziness, uh, understanding timing, you know, continuous or uh, episodic dizziness trigger, whether there's a movement or position trigger or not. And then you know, interpreting and, you know, performing your examination techniques based on the answers to those questions and then interpreting them in the context as well. Um, and then the hints cluster, which I think a lot of therapists know about, but even after I first heard about it, felt that I was less certain about when to use it and how to interpret it than I, than I am now. Um, and I feel like I still heal, still hear from, from folks talking about using hints in situations where, where in my mind, it's not appropriate to do so. Just to be clear, what I mean is if a patient doesn't have at least like unidirectional nystagmus, uh, if not in primary gaze, then, then at least in one gaze position, then it usually doesn't make sense to use hints or interpret it as differentiating peripheral from a central cause. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I can oh, John, if, if somebody's listening right now and they're like, I don't even know what the hints is, like, can you tell people just briefly like what that is and why you would use it? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the cluster of head impulse, uh, nystagmus, looking for whether it changes directions or not, and then testive skew, uh, also later amended to include a, a quick hearing screen. So if a patient comes in with uh, sudden onset persistent dizziness and they have nystagmus, whether it's in primary gaze or at least, you know, evoked in one gaze position, say a left nystagmus on left gaze, uh, then you use your hints cluster. And so you look, you, you do your head impulse test. You're looking for um, an abnormal test as a probably reassuring thing for a, a central pattern. But the important thing that, that Dana would make sure I mentioned is uh, if every one of the test items is not consistent with a peripheral pattern, then you have to rule out a central cause. So you're, you're doing your head impulse test. Um, you're, you're checking the stagmas, particularly uh, evaluating whether it changes directions and gaze positions or spontaneously. Uh, using a cover test or test of skew to evaluate for a vertical skew deviation. I've only seen it a couple of times in my career, but it is striking when you see it. Uh, and then a quick hearing screen. Even though, um, you know, labyrinthitis, inflammation of the uh, inner ear apparatus itself can cause acute hearing loss, it can also be caused by infarcts um, to the labyrinth. And so it's treated as a red flag, red flag finding. And uh, the important thing about the cluster is to know that if any one of the items is not consistent with the peripheral pattern, then you have to treat it as a, as though a central problem needs to be ruled out. Most of the time, head impulse, I'm sure, you know, um, caused by a peripheral problem, but like nine, nine or 10% of the time caused by an AICA, AICA stroke, which is why you have the redundancy of the other test items to help make sure you don't miss those. Perfect. So if I have a dizzy patient, where do I even start? 
Uh, you want to start by understanding whether the patient, I always ask, are you dizzy right now, right at this moment? You mm -hmm. want to really understand rigorously, are you, or is the patient having persistent dizziness or dizziness that comes and goes in episodes? And even when folks, you know, pretty often folks who have BPPV say, uh, if you say, are you dizzy right now? They say, yeah. And then if you, you know, you clarify a little bit, they say, well, I know I'm going to be dizzy if I move. And that's totally yeah. normal. <laughs> it's the, I'm sure that's if different. I feel like yep. yeah. yeah, almost always, that's what folks say. So you want to understand just, are they having episodes of dizziness or are they having persistent dizziness that's been there? And then you perform your physical exam based on your interpretation of those questions. I love that. And then one thing that I find that people are still really focused on when they're talking to a patient with dizziness is the like, is the room spinning? And they didn't say the room was spinning. And like, they're very focused on the patient's like subjective report of the quality of the dizziness. Can you speak to that? Is that a valid way to, to structure your exam? Thank you for mentioning that. So yeah, for whatever reason, it's taught to all kinds of different professionals that, yeah, use the quality of the patient's report to help separate into diagnostic buckets. Uh, it was very quickly disproven as a reliable way to judge whether, you know, patients who report room spinning dizziness have a vestibular cause or lightheadedness have a cardiogenic source. Um, you can't use the subjective label. You have to stick to the objective. Is the dizziness coming and going in episodes or is it persistent? And is there a trigger? Yes or no. Uh, you can't, can't use a subjective label. I also find that if I ask people, what does dizziness actually mean to you? That the number of things that people say is staggering. For sure. Yeah. So when I ask people like, are you lightheaded? Is the room spinning? Do you feel unstable? Do you feel like you're rocking or something? Like I get so many random answers to that that people usually can't explain it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the the big multicenter trial that was used demonstrated that people don't even you know rate their symptoms the same way on the second time going through a list of multiple choices. Um, yeah, no, like you, I've heard it all. I've heard patients who ended up having BPPV say they just felt so lightheaded. You know, patients with clearly unilateral hypofunction say you know they felt like they were going to pass out. You you hear all kinds of things, and yeah, it's just don't use that to guide you, and you'll be less likely to miss something. And I feel like that the medical team dismisses a lot if a patient says they have room spinning dizziness. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> but they're like, oh, no, it's, it's definitely peripheral because they feel like the room is spinning. Or it'll say in the chart, patient presents with room spinning dizziness. And then I ask the patient and they're like, no, it's not spinning at all. Like, I don't know. So I, I think it's really important to just like not base your findings on that. But one thing you just said is you don't want to miss something. And I think that's the biggest fear of most EDPTs because it isn't like being in the hospital where there's this, like all the workups have been done, right? Like you're, you're part of that decision-making process. What is it we really don't want to miss and how do we make sure we don't miss it? Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that as well. So definitely, yeah, anyone, regardless of role, I think wants to be cautious and make sure they're not going to overlook something that's going to potentially be dangerous for their patient. And to be clear, like in an optimal healthcare system, P what PTs would be doing is just evaluating folks who are consulted to rule out BPPV and then treating it if it's there, but we're never going to have that system. And so the reason that I um, felt so compelled to share this message about the titrate framework and the, the HINTS testing um, is that I had encountered so many things, so many patients where I was consulted specifically, you know, per try epley maneuver and just the range of problems that I ended up encountering was so, so wide. And I said, all right, even though this is not totally appropriately a PT problem, I'm going to encounter it if I mean to get involved with these patients. So I just need to be prepared to know what I'm looking at and know what to do about it. So yeah, just to answer your question, the things you're worried about certainly are posterior circulation strokes. When I, I saw a young guy, no trauma came in, um, reported room spinning dizziness and had been there like half a day. 
And he said, yeah, I'm really dizzy right now. And it really gets a lot worse. So I roll onto my side. And, and before I could even say anything, he showed me and had this pounding horizontal nystagmus that just stayed as long as he maintained that position. I said, okay, this is uh, an emergency. I didn't know actually right at the time exactly what it was. I had to stop and think back about it after, but I knew, you know, time to, to activate the emergency response here. And this, this young guy without trauma ended up having a vertebral artery dissection spontaneously. And uh, I don't know if he was later diagnosed with some sort of connective tissue disorder, but um, yeah, there are real emergent, dangerous things that you don't want to overlook. Um, and, and the more you know, the better prepared you're going to be, not only to know what you need to do as a PT, but to advocate and get quick attention to the patient. And I think the important thing that you mentioned there is what you need to know as a PT. And I think what we need to know is what's a PT problem and what's not, and what we need to do when it's not. Because if it's a PT problem, we can absolutely handle that. But when it's that issue where it it you take a look at it just like this one, and you're like, mm, that is not a PT problem. But knowing what to do next is absolutely crucial. Yeah, I agree. And and being aware that it's time sensitive, um, which yes. I think is the most important thing. Yeah, you can be down in the ED and say, all right, you know, I know this is not PPPV or at least doesn't look like any kind I've ever seen before, but I'm not totally sure what to do. And so I think just not being afraid to speak up, which, you know, is much more easily said than done if you're a brand new grad in a brand new environment and, and you know, potentially I mean, people with the healthcare um, team down in the ED are saying, what is PT even doing down here? It's a, it's a lot to go uphill against, but um, you know what you're an expert at and, and don't be afraid to speak up. The only thing you can possibly regret at the end of the day is not speaking up. So always yes. err toward the side of just lots of open, not just communication, but like, frankly, advocacy. Well, and I think in a case like this specifically, if you go to the team and you're like, well, he has dizziness when he rolls on his side and that's how you leave it, that's going to be dismissed immediately as BPPB. But if you've demonstrated that you're an expert at what you do and you can say, I can assure you based on my expertise, this is not BPPB and this is characteristic of a central issue and he needs an immediate medical workup for that, you're much more likely to be taken seriously. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Keep it concrete and objective. Say, you know, not I'm worried about something, but the more that you can say objectively this, this, and that, these are the three things or a couple of things that make me concerned about a, you know, potentially emergent central problem, then yeah, at that point, it's very hard to disagree with someone. Um, it's And so knowing a little more than just how to treat the PT problems really will go a long way, especially as we push and expand into these exciting and, and impactful care areas like the emergency department. I think you're absolutely right that it's critical and that we're the right people to do it. So John, if people are like, gosh, this is amazing. How do they find you and all these wonderful resources that you've made? All right. So um, I've got a little bit of a social media presence, not a whole lot, trying to do a little <laughs> bit of YouTube. <laughs> my my Twitter is uh, is moving as medicine. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not super engaged on social media. Um, once in a while, I'll write a professional journal article for Journal of Acute Care PT if you want to learn in my mind, a pretty concise and, and effective way to approach these folks. Um, check out that article. I also do have a, um, a short continuing education course remotely. It's just three hours recorded video course approved for CEUs. Um, introducing these ideas, going through some case studies from my own professional practice, reviewing some literature, a little bit of pathophys, but not too much. Uh, I'm biased, but I think it's uh, kind of the missing piece between what's available for continuing ed and what therapists, especially moving into the ED or, or advancing hospital practice, really need to know to be very effective in uh, evaluating and advocating for patients. I love that. And people can read more about your thoughts on healthcare, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Got, got too many of them, probably. I, I like to talk about, you know, not just nuts and bolts clinical stuff, but also health policy stuff. Often I write opinions in the Tennessean 
Um, happy to send you a link to those. But uh, yeah, no, I think like really from a small scale all the way up to big stuff, PTs are in such a good spot to drive the change that healthcare needs. And uh, yeah, I get excited to talk about them. I love it. So we'll link all of that in the show notes. And then I, my last question for you is what would you leave an EDPT with? Like, what do they need to know to show up every day and keep practicing at the top of their scope? Yeah, don't be afraid to speak up. Um, know what you know, always continuous learning. There's no such thing as getting your ducks in a row. And our job is never just to do the clinical work. We're always, always growing as clinicians. We're always responsible to engage with and improve the systems around us, not just to improve our own utilization, but to uh, better help patients and, and solve their problems earlier on. And so there's a million different ways, I think, to uh, to cost model this. You can look at you know time for delay between diagnosis. You can look at any number of things, but PTs can can really make a big difference in the care of patients, not just now, but in the future by just assuming an engaged role with that. So, so don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to put numbers on paper. It's all going to make a difference down the line. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show. You have been in the ED now and you're officially discharged. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Take care. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.